Well, good morning. I want to welcome you all, as well as those that are watching us over our live stream. Excited that you uh, took part of your Sunday to be with us. Well, today we're in the final sermon in our series on prepared, how to stand up to the storms of life. You remember the very first week, if you happen to be here, you remember that what we were reminded of out of all of that was that when Jesus is in your boat, there will, are still going to be storms, but you're going to make it to the other side. And then last week, we learned the truth that when, G, when whatever you're walking through at the present is not the end of the story. Well, each week, just before I stand up here to preach, you've watched those sermon bumpers, that little video that runs. And now, you know technical terms. That's a sermon bumper. Uh, but you've watched that, and it's been based on a passage from Matthew chapter 7 about two men and two houses. Let's use that passage. So if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to begin reading in verse 24. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. It says then, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now I want us to look at this passage of scripture but I want us to see it in light of the bigger picture that it's a part of. And to do that, you need to turn back a couple of pages in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, and starting that chapter in verse 1 there. Matthew chapter 5. And when you turn back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, in many of your Bibles, you will see a heading or a title that's there. What does it say? The Sermon on the Mount. And so it's telling us we are about to read the word of Jesus' sermon that he preached that day. In verse 2 of chapter 5, it tells us, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And then in verse 3, there's where the sermon begins. And we know that because he just said it started, but we also know that for the most part because most of us in here today, I'm guessing, have a red-letter edition Bible. For those of you who don't know what that means, a red-letter edition Bible is a Bible edition in which the words of Jesus, every time he speaks, every time he says something, we record it in red, and so it just kind of makes it easier as you're reading through the Gospels to see the actual words of Jesus. And so if you have a red-letter edition, it makes it real easy to kind of follow along with the context and the big picture of what's going on here. But in verse 3, he begins there with red letters, and that's Jesus speaking, Jesus preaching his message. And so if you just kind of scroll down with your finger and you realize there's red letter, red letter, red letter, red letter, and you've gone all the way through the fifth chapter, and you're still in red letters. So, you know, Jesus is still speaking. You know, Jesus is still delivering his sermon. And then you get into chapter 6, and you follow it, and you see more red letters and more red letters. And all the way through chapter 6, we see Jesus is still preaching his sermon. And then chapter 7, it starts off, and you see red letter, red letter, red letter. 
And so Jesus is still talking. Jesus is still preaching all the way down to chapter 7, verse 28. And in chapter 7, verse 28, it goes into black letters and it tells us, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. The Mike Osborne translation of that verse is this. When Jesus finished, the crowds left going, wow. What we get out of this and what we need to understand in the context of the bigger picture is the passage that we just read a moment ago, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, are part of a sermon. They're part of Jesus' sermon on the mount. In fact, they're not just a part of it, they are the conclusion of it. They are the part of the sermon when you're trying to bring everything back around, where you're trying to tie everything together. It is the part of the sermon in which he's calling on those who have heard it to respond. And so to understand the passage, we really have to kind of look at the sermon itself. And so I want us to do that. So go back again to chapter 5, verse 3, and you're going to see the start of the sermon. And when a preacher is beginning his sermon, going into his introduction, one of the things that he wants to do is catch the audience's, audience's attention. In other words, he wants them to catch on to what he's going to say and not fall asleep on him right away. And one of the ways you do that, or can do that, is by shocking them, by saying something, to, by making a statement that is shocking to them. And that's what Jesus does in his Sermon on the Mount. He shocks them. Because he starts off the sermon with this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he goes on with, blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that are persecuted. This would have been shocking to the crowd that was gathered there because it was contrary to everything they understood and everything they believed. Their idea, their thought process was, blessed are the ones who are wealthy, powerful, and happy. And so Jesus has now dumped on them something that is the exact opposite, and so he has shocked them right off the bat. And he knows that, he acknowledges that. If you look down to verse 17 there in chapter 5, Jesus tells them, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come, not, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what Jesus is saying in that sentence right there is he's telling them, he says, look, guys, I know I just freaked you out with what I said. I know that you're sitting here thinking, that's not what we believe. That's not what we understand. That's not what we've been taught. And you're also thinking, man, this guy's coming. He's going to destroy everything we've been taught up to this point. And Jesus says to him, no, I'm not, I'm not coming to destroy it. He says, I'm coming to fulfill it. He says to them, what I am doing here is actually trying to get you to see that you need to take it to another level. He says, I'm trying to get you to see that you need to take it to the level that God intended for you to be at all along. And he says, the reason I'm sharing with you is because something very significant and important is going on. And if you look down in verse 20, he tells, you what it, tells them what it is. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, what Jesus is about to share with them in all of this is they need to understand that 
the direction they're heading, the path they're taking is not going to get them where they want to go. He says, I'm here because I've got something very important to tell you. I've got to tell you how to get to the kingdom of heaven. I've got to tell you how to be saved. And he says, what you're doing now is not working. And so he says to them, you've got to get a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes of the Pharisees in order to get to heaven. You've got to have an exceeding righteousness, he says to them. Well, what is an exceeding righteousness? Well, Jesus here compares it to the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, so that's a good place to start to try to figure out what exceeding righteousness is. It's not this, okay? What is it that it's not? Well, to understand the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, a good place to go is into Matthew chapter 23, and beginning in verse uh, 25. And you can go there in your Bible, or you can look at it up here on the screen, but we see Jesus starts off, and you know, I, I often read this passage, and I think about there used to be an old Dale Carnegie course, and some of salesmen in here probably took that, how to win friends and influence people. I think Jesus missed the session on winning friends. He starts off, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You know, not, not a real nice beginning. But he says, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate. But inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. And then in verse 27, in case they didn't get it the first time, he comes back, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. Which, are outwardly, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. What is the righteousness of the Sadducees that we're not supposed to be about? It's being caught up on the external. The Pharisees were caught up in the external of how they looked and how they were perceived and, and what people thought about them. Jesus says, that's not the kind of righteousness that's going to get us anywhere. It's not the kind of righteousness that you need in order to make your way to heaven. So he's telling them this, and as he's doing it, we need to be very careful that we don't start pointing fingers at the Pharisees because the truth of the matter is we do the same thing. We, we get caught up in what people think and, and how people perceive us. And so Jesus is not only speaking to them, but he's speaking to us as well. And so he's telling us that, you know, like the Pharisees, we can have an empty shell that's got all kinds of fancy trimming on the outside, but it's nothing there. Inside is just death. But this exceeding righteousness that Jesus is talking about is a righteousness that comes in and changes and transforms and fills us with life. And Jesus says that's what we need. I want you to look at a series of phrases that Jesus uses in the fifth chapter. It's the same phrase, basically, over and over again. In chapter 5, verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said. 27, you have heard that it was said. 31, it was also said. 33, again, you have heard that it was said. 38, you have heard that it was said. 43, you have heard that it was said. In each one of these sections, Jesus leads off with the you have heard phrases. And he shares with them their misunderstanding, 
their misconception about all of this. He shares with them, he says, you have taken the Word of God and you've reduced it down and tried to limit it to make yourself look better because if we squeeze it down and get it very limited, then my chances of looking good are better. As I was preparing this sermon, my secular side came out and I thought of an old movie that Bill Murray was in when he was young. It's a movie called Stripes. And um, in, the, in the movie Stripes, at one place, he and his friend are enlisting in the army. And they go before the army recruiter. And the army recruiter asks him a question. says, have you ever been convicted of a felony or a misdemeanor? And he goes on, he says, that's like robbery, car theft, something like that. And Bill Murray thinks about it for a moment, and he goes, convicted? No. And his friend pipes in, same thing, never convicted. Well, see, that's what the Pharisees were doing. He said, have you ever committed murder? No, not me. Never have I committed murder. Have you ever committed adultery? No, not me. Never done that. I'm good. Then Jesus says, have you ever been angry? Have you ever lusted? See, what Jesus is sharing with them is that you've been missing the point of the whole thing. You see, if I keep it limited enough, I can say, I've never done that. But what all have I done? And that's what Jesus is trying to get them to understand and what he's trying to get us to understand as well. See, the Pharisees were all caught up on what it looked like. All caught up on the external. And Jesus says, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And he goes on in the sermon as you continue following along there. And he gets into chapter 6 and he tells them, he says, look, don't give so that others will be impressed. And he says, don't pray so that others can see you doing it. And he says, and don't fast in a way that makes others notice that you've been fasting. See, all of that's the external. And, and Jesus is trying to get us to see that the external is not what it's all about. Our walk and our relationship with God is not about the external. It is about what has happened on the inside. It is that exceeding righteousness that we need. But then the question, how do we get from the righteousness of the Pharisees to that exceeding righteousness, that inner righteousness. What do we do? Well, that's kind of the key. It's not something we do in and of ourselves. It's not something that we do on our own. What it is, is something that we receive. It's a gift that comes from God. It is what salvation is all about. In chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus shares these words. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Folks, understand this. We ask for those things we desire. We seek after those things that we feel are missing. And we knock when we can't get there in and of ourselves and our own power. 
And so Jesus says to us, ask, seek, and knock in order to get this exceeding righteousness. In other words, come to the place where you have a desire in your heart. And you know that there's something missing in your life and you've come to the realization that you can't solve it yourself. So seeking that which is missing and knowing you can't do it yourself, you ask out of the desire of your heart. With every fiber of your being, you ask for God to come in and to change you and transform you and make you into a new creature who has an exceeding righteousness, not of yourself, but of what God has done. Jesus, as he continues his sermon, moves on and reveals to us there's very limited choices in this whole process. In fact, there's just two. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. He says there are two choices. There is the narrow way and there is the wide way. The narrow way is Jesus. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the wide way, well, that's everything else. You see, it's either Jesus or something else. That's why it's wide. It covers everything apart from Jesus. But he says, choose. There's only two choices. You either choose Jesus or you don't. And the truth of the matter is, you're already on one path. Choosing Jesus turns you onto the right path. Paul tells us kind of the same thing when he wrote to the Corinthians. He said this, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Adam. That's the worldly way of doing it. That's the way of the Pharisees. That is the wide way that Jesus tells us leads to destruction. But then we have in Christ. In Christ. It's when we put our faith and our trust in Him. It's taking that narrow way and getting there. It's realizing what's missing in your life and it's having the desire for that to change and for Jesus Christ to come in and do the work that only He can do in your life. It's asking, it's seeking, it's knocking and having Him come in and do His work. Choosing the narrow way admits that our sins have separated us from God. Choosing the narrow way admits that we can't do it ourselves. Choosing the narrow way acknowledges that we have a need for a Savior. Choosing the narrow way brings us exceeding righteousness, not based on what we do, but on what Christ has already done. He who was righteous died on the cross and paid the price for our sins. We choose that way. 
we choose to be in Christ rather than in Adam. That is exceeding righteousness. And then Jesus goes on in his sermon and he says, the choice you make is going to be evidenced in your life by the fruit. He says, you will recognize them by their fruit. But that, by that that you produce in your life will show whether you've chosen the narrow way or the wide way. Whether you've chose to, chosen to live your life in Christ or in Adam. And then he comes to the conclusion of his sermon. And that's the passage in Matthew 7. 24 through 27. It's a passage about the wise and the foolish builder. It's a passage about the two houses. It's a passage about the storm that comes. And folks, as we've talked about the last two weeks, hear me very carefully. When we choose to build our lives and to build, uh, place our salvation in the hands of Jesus Christ, we will and can survive the storms of life. We can survive the storms of disappointment and discouragement. We can survive the storms of death and divorce. We can survive the storms of the daily disasters that come along. But I want you to understand, that is not really what Jesus is talking about at the end of his sermon. He's not talking about all these storms that come along in the course of our lifetime. What he is talking about is that super storm that is, is at the end. What he is talking about is the coming judgment. And he says, when the coming judgment comes, we're either going to be destined for heaven or we're going to be destined for hell. And it's based upon one thing, and that one thing is Jesus Christ. Have you built your house on the rock? That's the difference between the two men in this story. One built his house on the foundation of the rock, which never moves. The other built his house on the foundation of the sand, which are always shifting and moving. One survived. One, it said, had a great fall. And so as Jesus brings his sermon around and includes all of this, he's saying, what I'm trying to tell you about is salvation. What I'm trying to tell you about is heaven. What I'm trying to tell you about is being made right in Christ Jesus. You can build your life on the external, but that's not going to last. What's your life resting on right now? Which path have you taken? Jesus just finished preaching his sermon. How are you going to respond to Jesus? Paul, as he wrote to the Philippians, shared the desire of his heart. He said that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now look, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. See, that's the righteousness of the Pharisees. That's the righteousness of the wide way. He says, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. 
That's the exceeding righteousness. Paul says, I am basing my life on the exceeding righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Today, he gives us the opportunity to prepare for the storm by choosing the right path. How do you get exceeding righteousness? Ask, seek, and knock. And he will answer. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, whatever our need, whatever our situation, whatever our circumstances in life, Lord, we come before you right now. And Lord, we have heard your message. We've heard your word. And Father, there are many in here today who have been led through your spirit to respond. May we not leave your house without responding to your call. We, may we not leave this place today without having done business with you. Father, whatever it is we're to do, would you show us right now? In Jesus' name we pray.